we turn to our scripture this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. I think that's page 811 in your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and following, we will end chapter 5 this week. This is the word of our Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You may be seated. Fathers, we look to your word this morning. I ask that you would give us clarity that we would see the the instruction of our Lord and Savior not as a burden, but as a a joyful hope that is set out before us. Help us to trust Jesus, to not doubt His Word, to not question His Word, but to trust Him as our Savior, as the one who died for us. And in trusting Christ, God, give us new life in Him so that we can obey him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we we come to the the last of of these six, I guess we call them illustrations, that Jesus has been using to teach us about kingdom righteousness. Jesus has been showing us that righteousness in his kingdom, in his kingdom, not the world's kingdom but in his kingdom that righteousness is a fuller righteousness than the righteousness of the religious people of the world it's a righteousness that flows out of a heart that's been made new in Christ Jesus taught us that this type of righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees they're sort of his 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 foil for anyone who would find a righteousness in themselves. If you're wondering what pharisaical righteousness looks like, it's, it's the type that wants to be found right under the law, and so it interprets the law in such a way that they're always right. It's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the type of righteousness that we are born with. We want to be right. We're born that way. It springs out of our sin nature. So we want to be justified. Always we want to be justified. And in our sin nature, we want to be justified in ourselves. I'll tell you a little story about how I have this nature. When I was a preschooler, I despised nap time. I hated it. I would give anything for naps now, but naps 
1984 were not what I looked forward to. So one summer day, I convinced my mom to let me play outside instead of taking a nap. My little sister was upstairs. She took a nap. I went outside at my mom's uh, with permission from her. And I said I was going to play on my swing set. And I did for a little while. And then when she wasn't looking, I wandered out of the yard in the backyard across, uh, if I remember, uh, this dead tree that had fallen across a creek into the neighborhood behind my house, across a busy street, down the road to my friend Stephen's house. I was four. <laughs> when, when I knocked on the door to see if Stephen could come out and play, his mom just looked at me with this scowl on her face. I can, I can remember it. And she walked back inside, and, and I thought at that moment, my adventure is over. <laughs> so she went inside, and she called my mom, and my mom came to pick me up. She brought me home. She scolded me as any good mom would. She told me that I could have gotten hit by a car. And right before my spanking, she, she gave me the opportunity to repent. And so I, being a sinner, thought that a call to repentance was a call to justify myself. And so that's what I tried to do. I argued with her that there was no way I was going to get hit by a car when I crossed that busy road. Because when I crossed the street, I held my hand. <laughs> I obeyed the letter of the law, didn't I? Hold someone's hand when you cross the road. That's how to be safe. That was going to get me across the road safely. And if that was my mom's concern, then that was my defense. Strict obedience to the letter of the law. Regardless of the motives of my foolish heart, of my rebellious heart, I had done exactly what Mr. Rogers had taught me. <laughs> so I was righteous in my own eyes. Self-righteousness, what, what we would call Pharisaism, it's coming up with these ways of getting what we want, what our flesh desires, while at the same time finding a way to be righteous in our own eyes. The example that Jesus points to in our text this morning is what you see in verse 43. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, every religious person knew God's instruction from Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. And everybody wanted to be found obeying that command. So you know what they did? Well, what would you do? If you wanted to be obedient to this command, love your neighbor as yourself, how would you define things in such a way that you could always be obedient to that? Well, you have to define neighbor don't you? You define neighbor really strictly and you can be obedient to that command. That's, that's what the story of the Good Samaritan is all about in Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, there's a religious teacher, one that Luke calls a lawyer, and he comes up to Jesus asking about the way to eternal life. Jesus says, well, what does the law say to do? So the man says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. People understood 
That was God's basic desire for them. And Jesus says, right. That's right. Do that and you will have life. But the man's not satisfied. Luke 10.29 says this is how the man responds. But he, look, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? See what he's doing? He wants to be found right under the law, so he wants to be justified under the law, and he knows if Jesus can give him this really tight definition of neighbor, then he can be found right. If if the neighbor is the one who lives like us, and acts like us, and looks like us, and talks like us, and worships like us, if it's the people that like us, then we are all right. Right? We can be righteous according to an easy law like that. If I say my neighbor is the people I like, no problem. I can love the people I like. And the people I don't like, well, according to my definition, they're not my neighbor. So God doesn't say how I should treat them. In fact, I can even, if I'm thinking like a Pharisee, which I often am, I can take God's word and twist it and make an argument where I can say it's actually okay to hate my neighbor. Right? Think about it this way. What did God do to the Egyptians when he was delivering the Israelites from Egypt? It looks like hate. When Israel was commanded to go into the promised land, what did God command them to do to the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites? Kill them. Take no prisoners. Show no mercy. That's Bible, right? So from a, a worldly perspective, if I'm looking to justify myself, I can say, well, that looks like hate to me. God loved Jacob and his descendants, but what about Esau and his descendants, the Moabites? J- Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You see how that argumentation could evolve into love your neighbor and hate your enemy? In fact, that's exactly what had happened. God's command had been twisted. And we actually have religious documents from when Jesus walked the earth that say something to the effect of love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's not in the Bible. But we have found religious documents that say it. How many are familiar with the, the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, that's, a, um, the, that's the name that archaeologists have given to these ancient manuscripts that were found in the Qumran caves near the Dead Sea in Israel. And there are several little scrolls that were rolled up and stored in these clay jars. And some of these scrolls show us some of the oldest Old Testament texts that we have. Some of them dating all the way back to 70 B.C. But also with those Old Testament writings are writings that are written by the religious group who stored the scriptures there in the scrolls or in the the jars. Let me read for you what this group we call the Essenes wrote down as a part of a vow that they took to be a part of their religious community. This is their vow. To love all the children of the light, each man according to his lot, in the counsel of God and to hate all the children of the darkness. 
each man according to his guilt in the vengeance of God. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And there's, there's one really big problem with this. is It's just not biblical. Enemy hating is not commanded in the Old Testament. In fact, there are several passages that would seem to show that Israel was to actually love their enemy. Or at least be a help to them. Exodus 23 is where we see a couple of these. Exodus 23 verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. That's a lot of work, isn't it? You know how many people it takes to restrain an ox that has gotten out of its pen? (laughs) Or a donkey? They're out of their pen because they don't want to be in their pen. And God is commanding His people to stop what they're doing, go out of their way to catch this escaped animal and bring it back to the enemy. The next verse, Exodus 23.5 says something very similar. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Stop what you're doing and help your neighbor remove the donkey's burden so it can get back up and walk and continue in whatever task your, your enemy had set out to do. And who do you think helps him now carry that extra weight? You do. Your donkey. So that means you have to walk alongside your enemy to help him accomplish whatever he has set out to do. That is the full extent of the law. That's what Jesus is showing us. That's how God wanted his people to treat his enemies. But people had twisted that. They had twisted it to say to love your neighbor and hate your enemy because they wanted to be justified in themselves. So Jesus, when he recalls this to the people, he's saying, you hear people saying this, right? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And then he's going to tell us what he wants to show us. See, passages like those ones in Exodus are conveniently forgotten, aren't they? When it comes to justifying ourselves, it's a lot easier to just stick with that one verse that we know. That that one proof text taken out of context and sort of create our own definition of what we think righteousness looks like. A definition that makes us look righteous. So we sort of shorthand the righteousness of God. We shorthand the law. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. But Jesus says our righteousness, the righteousness of his followers, citizens of his kingdom, it's got to be a far greater righteousness than that. It must be perfectly in line with the righteousness of God himself. Just as Christ's righteousness was. And he shows us what that looks like here in verse 44. You still have your Bible open. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Not just love your neighbor. Love your enemies. If you're taking notes, there's three reasons why I see in the text why Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. The first is, is, is really minor, but it's, it's kind of a big deal. The, the big thing Jesus is saying is this is what the Old Testament taught. 
So if the Old Testament teaches this, this, this is the righteousness of God, this is the law, we should obey it. Jesus is the one who understands that law better than anyone else. He is the Word of God. He has the Holy Spirit. He knows the Old Testament because He helped write it. And, and like we saw a moment ago, the Old Testament seems to say we actually should love our enemy, not hate them. So Jesus, in telling us to love our enemy, is correcting the bad teaching of the day. And people kind of picked up on this. When they heard Jesus' teaching, they, they knew this is different than what we're hearing. Not a new teaching, but, but it's different than the way that the scribes have been teaching us. Look at how they respond at the end of Matthew chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that we're studying right now. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Where did he get his authority? He knew the word better than anyone. People recognized that Jesus' understanding of the Bible was authoritative. He knew God's word and he lived it out. That's why he says, love your enemies. It's in the Bible. It's the first reason. The second reason Jesus says to love our enemies, he explains for us in verse 45. He says in verse 45, so that, so love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Why should we love our enemies? Because that's what our Father does. And we're his kids. Our Father provides for those who oppose him who hate him. He sends them the sun to give life to their crops. He sends rain to provide nourishment to their crops, to give them water to drink. And if that's the posture of our just and holy father, then that should be our posture. We're his kids. He's not, Jesus isn't saying here, if we love our enemies, then we become sons of God. That's it's not a conditional statement here. You can misread this to be conditional. But it's not. Look it back at Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Do you see the, the so that? It's the same word. It's in order that you're doing something to show something that's true. And so when we love our enemies, we are showing the truth that we are sons of God. We're letting our light shine before them. And they give glory to who? Our Father who's in heaven. Loving your enemy is simply showing your sonship. Jesus did this. He's the Son of God. Did Jesus die for us because we were his friends? No, Romans 5.10 Christ died for us while we were his enemies. For, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God 
by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God provides for the just and unjust by sending sun and rain. He provided for you and me while we were his enemies by giving us his son. And being his sons and daughters, that's what we do. That's the same type of love we're to show everyone. And knowing we are sons and daughters of our Father, the provider and redeemer, what's one of the ways that we are to show love to our enemy? What does he say? Pray for them. Look at that second part of verse 44. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is what that prayer sounds like. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We pray our big brother's prayer. Praying for someone is the most loving thing we can do for our enemies. To pray for someone is to do this, is to ask that our Redeemer God, the one who has saved us, the one who loved us when we were his enemies, it's to ask that he would show them the same kindness that he showed us. We pray for their salvation. We pray that they'd be forgiven for their rebellion against God, that they'd be given faith in Christ. Praying for our enemies does something else. It also acknowledges that we are not the ones responsible for their judgment. Are we? God is. So when we pray, it shows that we trust our Father to take care of the situation according to His sovereign goodness. He has revealed to us His desire for them. His desire for them is that they would come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we ask that desire would come come to fruition. But if they remain in rebellion against Him, we let Him take care of that. That's not our job. Praying for your enemies also says to our Father, in our prayer, God, I want to be like you. I want to have your compassion. I want to have your patience. I want to have your love, your mercy towards your enemies. When we pray for our enemies, we are actually asking God to change our hearts toward them. Aren't we? It's really hard to hate someone that you're praying for. Really difficult to do. You know why? Because when you begin to pray for for someone, to pray that they'd receive the mercy of God, you begin to feel merciful toward them. When we spend time with our Father, by the power of the Spirit, through the mediation of the Son, we become more like God. Our character changes, our posture changes, our attitude changes. That's how it is when you spend time with anyone, though. This is not unique. Spend time with a complainer. And what becomes of you? You begin to complain more, don't you? Spend time with a gossiper, and you begin to gossip more. Spend time with people who always see the negative, and you will always see the negative. But spend time with God, 
in his word and in prayer and by the power of the spirit, you become more like him, more loving, more patient, more joyful, more kind, more merciful. And as you begin to take the focus off of yourself and towards the one who has mercifully welcomed you in while you were his enemy, you begin to see that other person the same way that God does, as a sinner in need of grace. So love your enemies, Jesus says. Pray for those who persecute you. Now the third reason Jesus says to love our enemies is a follow-up to what we learned last week. All of this has been compounding on itself. Like all of, all of chapters 5, 6, and 7 are one unit. So we're preaching 100 sermons on one sermon. That our understanding, this is what we learned last week, our understanding of who our enemies are is corrupted by our own sin and selfishness. We can't be trusted to decide who is our neighbor and who is our enemy. So Jesus says, just love them both, and you can't go wrong. Think about last week's passage. Do you remember how Jesus was showing us how quick we are to make everyone out to be our enemy? The one who insults us by slapping us on the face? We quickly make them out to be of the evil one. The one who sues us. The government. The beggar. Even a friend who asks us for a loan. We can make each one of these people out to be our enemies. We treat them all like they're evil, like they are children of the darkness, as the Essenes said. Our instinct, because of our selfishness, because of our sin, is not to decide who our enemies are based on their opposition to our holy God. Our instinct is to decide who our enemies are based on their opposition to us. And we do it all the time. Someone takes your spot in the parking lot. You had your eye on it. You were waiting. Somebody's pulling out. You had your eye on this spot and someone else slips in. What is our first assumption? Oh, they had it out for me. They were following me around the parking lot waiting for me to find a spot and then they were just parking there to spite me. Right? They're our enemy. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, they're probably an assassin hired by the evil one. They're trying to kill you. Somebody didn't return your text or somebody didn't return your email or somebody didn't call you back when you called. Oh, they've got it out for me, right? They, they're intentionally trying to insult me. That's what we assume. Somebody posted something that offended you on Facebook. They definitely did it because they knew you were having a bad day and they were thinking specifically about you and they wanted to see you suffer when you looked at this meme, right? If somebody disagrees with us, we make them out to be our enemy. If somebody comes from another country to get a job in our country and to provide for their family, we just say, they're our enemy. They're taking things that might be mine. If somebody believes or thinks or worships differently than us, we act like they're our enemy. We can't be trusted to decide who our enemies are. Jesus is, is teaching us not to hate our enemy because in the sinful heart of the self-righteous, everyone's our enemy. And if we were to love only our neighbor, we'd be like the Pharisees. 
We'd be narrowing down that definition of neighbor to this little group of people that think and act and talk and look like us. Jesus says anybody can do that. That's easy. That doesn't take a renewed heart. That does not take dying to yourself and being raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Loving a select little group of people who already like you does not take being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Look at what Jesus says in verses 46 and 7. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Everybody can do that. Tax collectors, like Matthew, our narrator here, they were hated. They were everyone's enemy, but they could find solace with one another. Even when there was nobody else to go out to dinner with, the tax collectors could go out to eat with other tax collectors, at the very least. And Gentiles, that basically means the nations, everyone else in the entire world, everyone hugs and welcomes the people that like them. We're happy to see people that like us. That's not supernatural. The Taliban can do that. El Chapo can do that. Even the vilest mafia member takes care of his own, doesn't he? Loving the people who like you does not take being born again. Loving your neighbor is easy if you decide who your neighbor is. So to blow that way of thinking out of our hearts completely, Jesus says, love your neighbor and your enemy. If you love your neighbor and your enemy, you can't find loopholes in that. You can't find exceptions There's no way out. Love everyone you know. Love the people like you. Love the people who like you. People who hate you. Love the people who are indifferent to you. Love the people you've never met. And when we're like this, we're putting on display the saving work of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's why he's calling us to do this. We weren't saved for our own good. We were saved and are being saved and will be saved for the glory of God. We were called out of the darkness and brought into the kingdom of Christ to be image bearers of Jesus Christ. See, the world, the world can create a standard of righteousness that is achievable in the flesh without the Spirit. We can do that. Pharisees can do that. The Essenes could do that. Buddhists can do that. Hindus and Muslims and Mormons and every other religious tradition that ever was can create a standard of righteousness that they can achieve. Because they get to define what righteousness is. But Christianity is different. This, this story, this good news makes us different. Jesus Christ shows us a righteousness We cannot get on our own. It's different. It stands out. It's the righteousness of God himself. Look at the last verse in our passage. This should make it clear. Verse 48. You, therefore, he's talking to us, his disciples. You must be perfect. As your heavenly father is perfect. 
What do the self-righteous say when they make a mistake? Nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. The self-righteous are hard on others and they're easy on themselves. There's always an out. There's always a loophole. There's always an exception. They understand that, that there's going to be some inconsistencies with what they say and what they do. Jesus says, no, not with you. Christian, you must be perfect. There must be, what he means by this is there must be a wholeness to your holiness. Not a hole in your holiness. We're, we're, we're not to put an external appearance of goodness on. But to have an all the way through us holiness. A goodness that goes, is apparent to others and goes all the way to our hearts. Think, think about, maybe you don't have this experience because you don't like mangoes, but I love mangoes. And one of the hardest things for me to do is to pick out a good mango. Especially the red ones. The yellow ones are easier. But the red ones, I can look for bruising. I can look for spots. I can feel them. They can, they can give with touch. It's whole. It's clean. It looks like a good mango on the outside. And then you start to peel it. And you get that. It's all brown and gross on the inside. It's rotting from the core outward. I don't even know how that happens. It's a, a perfect mango, though, the kind that Jesus says we're to be, is one that is good all the way through to the core. It doesn't just look good. It's not just a self-apparent righteousness. It's a, a righteousness that goes all the way good. It's wholly good. It's sweet all the way to the heart. That's what Jesus wants from us if we are truly born again. And if we are truly born again, that's what he'll get from us because that's what the Spirit does. Someone who has been born again in Christ receives this teaching. They hear their Savior and they say, all I see here is hope. All I see here is, is goodness in front of me. We hear the words of our Savior and know this is an invitation to the life that springs out of trusting in him. And we hunger for this and we thirst for this whole life righteousness that Jesus is describing for us. But outside of Christ, for those who haven't been born again, for those in the flesh, we see Jesus' teaching and it crushes us. It destroys us. It feels like more law, more to do. Why? Because you know you can't love your enemies. You know that turning the other cheek is impossible. If someone wrongs you, you're going to fight back in some way. You know that submitting to others is not something you do well. You know that you're not a truthful person. You know that your thoughts are impure. You struggle with anger to such a point that when people talk to you, they just get this sense of anger oozing out of you. And they would say, you got a problem with anger. And so you hear this teaching of Jesus and you say, no way. Jesus' teaching just becomes yet another burden on your burdensome life. More guilt to weigh you down. And you despair. Reading about what Jesus has taught us. But in Christ, 
in, in Christ our Savior, when we have been drawn by the Holy Spirit to Jesus, when we were poor in spirit and we already knew of our own brokenness, our hypocrisy and our self-righteousness, all of this it comes into focus really clearly for us. In Jesus, we look at these commands and we see this is not a heavy burden. This is a place of rest. Having received Christ, this teaching is a genuine invitation from our Father to come into flourishing. To to leave behind the hypocrisy of looking holy on the outside but being rotten on the inside and all the work that comes up with that appearance making in front of everybody. This is an invitation to leave behind the constant comparing ourselves to others so that we can feel more righteous. This is an invitation to leave behind all the different ways that we try to cover up our sin or make excuses for our sin or pretend it doesn't really exist when we know that it does. This is an invitation to be a new creation. One that sees the sin in us for what it is. Something inconsistent with one who is a child of God. So, we confess sin. We live in repentance and we lay aside who we were and we move towards who we are in Christ. In Christ, we are being given all the way to our core, all the way to our hearts, this whole life holiness. And the key to living this life is is this. Every day we are to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. You wake up in the morning, you say, I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I've been adopted to him through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him I have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of my trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I didn't make that up. That's Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 5 through 7. We are sons and daughters of God adopted to him through Jesus Christ. I'm just going to say this again according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. We've been brought in for His glory. So remember who you are, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. We received it from Him. We did not achieve it on our own. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. None of this is ours. None of it. It's all been given We know it's been given to us. We don't have to. We don't feel a burden when, when you see who you are in Christ. How can you be burdened by this? This is the best news you've heard today. And knowing who we are, empowered by His Spirit, we can be who we are. Holy, holy. All the way, all the way to our core, we can live out our faith in Christ and love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Let's pray. Father, there's not much else to say. 
And I thank you so much.